Hi, everybody. Welcome to an extremely special edition of the How to Buy a Home podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a guest. Joel Larsgaard is here. Hi, Joel. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Now, for those of you who don't know, Joel has an awesome podcast called How to Money. It's uh, him and his best friend, Matt. They've got almost 100 episodes. They're up to 93. Started in December of 2017. And when I was searching on the internet to try to find information for you guys, you know, folks who are thinking about buying a home, guess who popped up? Joel and Matt. But Joel, I got confused because right at the beginning, the first episode says that it was talking about you guys because you liked biking. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. We're huge fans of riding bikes. In my mind, that's one of the number one money savers you can actually do is just to ride your bike more frequently. That's how that started. And for those of you, I can truly attest to this because we moved the time of the podcast today because he doesn't want to get caught in the rain because you rode your bike to work today. Yeah, that's right. I try to ride it you know, as often as possible, usually 80% of the time. That's kind of my goal. That is awesome. Okay. If you're not picking up what's going on, folks, I'm telling you guys that, yeah, it's tough to get a house and you got to save. Joel doesn't just talk this, he lives it. And they do some great stuff. So it's you and Matt, you guys talk about things, but you also drink craft beer on your shows. Tell us how that started. Sure. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of financial podcasts and shows out there that really do a lot of good, help folks, but they're also, one, they're kind of harder to relate to. And two, it seems like they're all about deprivation. It's like, hey, how can I save every single penny or figure out how to wait, make my life miserable while I'm trying to kind of get my financial ground game together? And so the craft beer for us in our show, it kind of represents that willingness to spend money on things that actually matter to us now and not just purely thinking about the future, although that's really important, but to actually prioritize living a rich life like in the here and now at the same time. Wow, that's amazing. Joel, one of the first guys that I met when I started this podcast is a young guy who works at Disneyland. I help a lot of folks who work at Disneyland. As a matter of fact, I think we just closed our 70th transaction with them. After sitting down, he didn't think he could buy a house. He talked a lot of trash to me on the internet and said, you're crazy. I like my landlord to fix everything. After he sat down with me, we figured out it was going to be a year before he needed to buy a house. And so he said, all right, I'm going to save when I get back. I said, what do you mean when I get back? He's seeing like all Disney parks all around the world over the next 12 days, living just like you're talking about. Yeah. That's awesome. Isn't it super cool? So Yeah, that's super cool. In honor of you, though, I've decided to, this is from San Diego, if anyone's watching this on video, because I will post this someday. Have you heard of Beer Geek, Joel? Oh, yeah. That's a, is that a beer by McKellar out of yeah. San Diego? Yeah. Oh, man, they make some awesome beers. I'm a huge fan of theirs. Awesome. Well, I'm a stout guy, so I'm going to try the one called Breakfast because you're on East Coast time, but it's still 11 o'clock here. <laughs> well, you know what? At 11 o'clock, I think a breakfast stout is where it's at. That's for sure. Fantastic. Okay, so lots of folks... How about this? I'll get the pour, though. Yeah. There you go. Lots of guys are... Oh, scared. man, I'm jealous. I know. I know. He's still <laughs> at the office, folks. That's how much Joel cares about you. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it because what you guys do is there are a whole lot of people out there talking about how to live your best life. And I love that. And I think that's great. The issue is a lot of times they talk about everything. What you guys do is you focus on money. And that's the cool thing. But you're coming at it from a perspective of this is stuff we did. You know, neither one of you are, you know, financial planners. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Just okay. normal dudes that found out that as best buddies, this was the subject that kept coming up. We were small-time real estate investors. We just like talking about saving money, investing, thinking about the future. And because it was something that we discussed all the time, we were like, oh, let's create a podcast over a beer and we'll talk about these, these issues and hopefully help some other folks at the same time. 
You guys, you got to listen to it. It's Joel and Matt. They start the podcast with a beer and you guys are genius. First of all, you get free beer now. So that's awesome. No, that's pretty great. We're pretty, yeah. Like if the podcast was only to be able to get free beer, that was totally worth it. Honestly, that's some great <laughs> stuff. Well, so they open the beer, they talk about money. And at the end of the podcast, you guys review the beer and you guys know your stuff. Well, you know, we've been drinking beer now for a number of years. And Matt, I would say, has a little bit more of a refined palate than I do. But man, I don't know. There's just so many good beers out there nowadays and so many just small local breweries that, that people have been kind enough to send us beers from. We've been fortunate to try beers from all over the place. And I mean, I will drink almost any kind of craft beer. And I'm just, yeah, thankful that we've gotten to try some really, really good ones, man, because there's some good ones out there. And then you guys do some great stuff on the podcast. You talk about, you know, one of your mantras is frugal versus cheap. And I love that because you're letting folks know, again, that, that you can do things and still have your craft beers. But like at one point, you guys talked about the Acorn app. Do you remember when you guys talked about that and, and the guy who went on the golf trip using the Acorn yes, app? Totally. Yeah. So it's a, a mutual friend of Matt and I's. And so what he did was he actually talked to his wife like two years before he wanted to do this trip with some buddies. He wanted to take a golfing trip to Ireland. And his wife was like, well, I guess if you can come up with the money. And so he downloaded this app called Acorns, which is kind of cool. It rounds up your purchases to the nearest dollar and it kind of creates this easy savings. It puts it on autopilot so you don't even have to think about it, which is kind of cool. And so over a couple of years while he's planning for this trip and his wife's like, whatever, it's probably not going to happen. Well, Acorns comes through in the clutch and it turns out he has thousands of dollars in the savings account after this couple of years. And she's like, whoa, okay, I guess you can go on this golfing trip with your buddies. And so yeah, Acorns is kind of one of those cool ways that you can save money without actually having to think about it. And I know for lots of people, there's a behavioral hurdle, right? It's like, I'm not going to be able to force myself to save money. And so if you can have something working in the background that's automated that actually forces you to do it, I mean, I think that's a great way to handle it. And that's amazing. That tip, I mean, folks, that little nugget right there, imagine... Joel and his best friend drinking beer, but dropping sweet knowledge nuggets like that. It's awesome. And I've actually learned a little bit about Joel to know that one of the things that he saves for is really cool art. And I didn't know if you had to notice my wife and her fabulous Thomas Kincaid behind me. Oh, there we go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the exact opposite of your taste. which you know, I know. I like I urban folk that. art. It's really weird. So, so talk about that so that while you're still saving money, like my guys, they're going to have a goal, buy a house. Your goal is to give your family a little space, yet you don't deny yourself stuff. Talk about the folk art. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so for me, it's been really important to figure out what I call the why behind money. It's like, why am I doing this? Why am I saving? Why am I spending on the things I'm spending on? It's really kind of taking a step back and seeing, okay, what are my priorities and how can I be mindful about spending money in those positive ways that actually move the needle and make me happy, bring a measure of happiness in my life. And like we mentioned, you know, buying folk art is one of those for me. Buying craft beer is one of those for me. And then taking a really fun trip with my wife or my family, my wife and kids every year is really important. And so I prioritize kind of those three things the most highly. And then I kind of try to cut back ruthlessly in any other ways that don't really move the happiness needle in the same way for me. And so that means driving older cars. That means biking to work as often as possible, which I actually love now. There are all these other ways in which I just try to cut back the cheapest possible cell phone service. I mean, I could go on and on. And these are the kinds of things that we talk about on the show. But if you can sit down and do some real soul searching and find your why behind money and prioritize 
really just a few things that really do move the needle for you in regards to happiness and then cut back in those other areas. That's going to help you save for those goals that you have in mind, like potentially buying a house, right? And at the same time, you're going to be able to actually partake in the things that you really do care about today, this week, this month, and not say that you're going to travel 20 years from now when you retire, but actually do some of those things like in the here and now. Gosh, it's so funny because my brain is just remembering everything from the podcast. I'm telling you guys, after we're done or pause right now and go right to it, how to money. I'm remembering so much about that. Why? There are so many podcasts out there. And I know a lot of you guys listening are freaked out about adulting. What Joel and Matt do, that podcast, it's near the beginning, which is great because it kind of explains why you guys are doing it. But the priorities, that was so great. You guys, and it was different for each of you. That's why there's no one size fits all. And, you know, I know that you had talked about Dave Ramsey was a great introduction, but at this point, maybe you're not listening because it kind of feels like a one size fits all. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we've talked about Dave before and and he's certainly helped a lot of folks and he's in particular really good when it comes to the topic of getting out of debt and he has helped, I mean, just countless numbers of people. I mean, it's really impressive the impact that he's had. But then, yeah, when it goes kind of beyond that topic, I think there are other people out there that can probably help you more on other topics related to finance. And two, part of it is tone for me. I mean, I think the way Matt and I try to approach the show is create kind of just a friendly, casual, easy to understand tone. And I think that's definitely a big problem right now when it comes to people being able to learn about money. There are a lot of complex topics and we need people to simplify them and kind of come down to our level. And so that's kind of, you know, one of our goals with the show too, is just to kind of make it easy for folks to begin to get started, like, and give them the little tips and tricks, like something like Acorns, where it's like, okay, I've been told I need to save, but like, how do I do it? And, and how can you help me make it easy? And it's amazing because, I mean, I've listened to a lot in, you know, I've been doing this a long time now, 13 years and three months ago, my wife said, you're super happy when you work with first time buyers. Why don't you just focus on that? And I said, well, cause no one does it. And then she goes, that sounds like the right idea to do it then. And it's been great, but I've been listening to people talk about budgetary mindset on such a grand scale. What you guys did is great. Pick your why and then prioritize. And it's different for each of you. You took three things. So while you're still biking to work, using Acorn and rounding up, not to mention the 783 other tips they get from your podcast, instead of thinking about, I'm saving money, I'm saving money, I'm saving money, you guys focus on these priorities, these little gifts to yourself, whether it's folk art, whether it's, oh, I saved enough from Acorn that I could take half of it towards my big goal and the other half's going to buy a really awesome six pack. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think too, like the word budgeting has gotten a bad rap. And so we're trying to kind of take that back and say, you know what? Budgeting is not a four letter word. We're trying to to help people see that budgeting can be positive because actually Budgeting isn't about deprivation and cutting back as much as possible, but budgeting is about seeing what comes into your life when it comes to income and then directing it in ways that's going to actually help you achieve your goals and boost your happiness, really. I mean, that's what I think of when it comes to budgeting and actually, you know, being friends with Matt and doing the show with him has helped me come around on budgets a little bit because I used to actually be pretty anti-budget. I used to not have a budget. And I think for some rare people that you cannot budget and it can be okay. But most of us need a budget, especially if we're trying to get on the same page with our partner. And, and so they're kind of one of these necessary things. And if we can think about it in the proper way, if we can get the right perspective when it comes to budgeting, I think we can kind of take that word back and say, you know what, I'm going to budget and it's going to be good because I'm going to be able to 
to make my goals. I'm going to be able to change my life and change my future and actually save for that house or actually take that trip I wanted to take. Whereas before, money was just slipping through my fingers. I didn't know where it was going. And so I think budgeting is actually a positive thing, which is, man, I never thought I would have said that like five years ago, but I think it is. <laughs> you guys, I'm telling you, when you listen to this podcast and you get to know them, it's totally true. And what was fun is when you guys got to housing, you had the same thing. Again, there's a lot of one size fits all information out there. And you're talking to me from your office. You work out of your office. And for you, when you were buying a house, it was a house. Whereas for Matt, like he had a different perspective because it was more of a home, someplace that he was going to be in more. And so you guys even looked at buying a house differently. Yeah, completely. I mean, Matt works out of his house and so he needs different things from it. He and his family are there all the time. They only have one car because, I mean, he works six days a week inside of his house. And so he prioritized having good workspace. For me, I prioritized you know, buying a really small house, buying something that was incredibly efficient so I could save more of my money and route that towards future desires and basically reaching financial independence. So living in a smaller space was really important for my family. We even did what we call house hacking, which means you know, we live in part of the house and we rent out the other part of the house so that we could basically save even more. And so that's kind of what I prioritized. And your, your priorities kind of shift over time too. So we're just now getting to the point, I'm 35, where you know, our, my family's growing. We're pregnant with our third kid. And so we're ready to kind of stop the house hacking game and take kind of back over our whole space. But it's been really, really good while it lasted. And it's really helped us achieve some of these goals that we had much more quickly than it would have if we had prioritized you know, buying this really nice home for our, our family to enjoy. It feels like we waited until the proper time to actually make that move. That's awesome. I love the house hacking episode. I scrolled through and did everything that said house. <laughs> but I actually did listen to a lot of the other stuff because I'm finding that my podcast, it's how to buy a home and it's focused on first-time buyers. And it's pretty much now divided itself up into three segments. The first segment is to reach and talk to people that don't think they can buy a house because every one of the 81 first-time home buyers that I've had could have done it a couple years earlier and they already knew where they wanted to go and were geographically settled. And they rented for those last two or three years. Around here, that's about two grand a pop. So $24,000, $48,000 wasted. So that's level one. And those people can learn from all of the stuff in your podcast where you're just talking about the basic budgeting and not fearing the budgeting word. Because I know the Excel spreadsheet just terrifies some people. But it's great to me, the house hacking. My Disney clients... So many of them bought houses and rent a room Airbnb because guess who wants to come to Anaheim? The Everybody. whole world. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. So one of my first clients who house hacked started in 2011. And in 2015, he invited me to this rad housewarming party he was having. The entire backyard was redone. Super deck. Whole I was like, what is this? And he goes, this is what I call uh, 47 B&Bs over the past five years. I was like, oh, okay, cool. It was awesome. That's, yeah, that, that's a great thing, man. Yeah, if you're willing to live life a little bit differently, if you're willing to think outside the box, if you're willing to even be maybe a touch uncomfortable, then I think you can accelerate achieving those financial goals that you have in your life. And maybe that means renting a smaller space while you're looking for a house so that you can funnel an extra few hundred dollars every month toward that down payment fund. Or whether it means buying a duplex or a triplex or running out a spare room in the house that you do buy. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to kind of supercharge that savings and supercharge your ability to kind of meet those goals more quickly. 
there's a great guy and I found him through a Southern California friend of mine. And so I just been consuming everything he does. And I, I don't know if he's national or not, but his name's Adam Carroll and he does financial planning for people on college campuses. He does like oh, cool. 50 campuses a year. So, but you know, his whole thing, it's great. He talks to everyone about when you get out of college, the duplex is the great first time purchase because you're still you, you're fine, you're single, but like you guys are already getting into real estate vesting, correct? Yeah, I've got three single family homes and a duplex that I rent out. And yeah, I've, my goal has been to kind of buy an investment property every two years. I'm kind of slowing down just a little bit now, but I feel like it's worked out really, really well for me so far. And I think real estate investing is a great way for folks to go who are interested in it. Okay, so tell the story to my folks who might be concerned about real estate investing, thinking I can't be a landlord. What happens if something breaks? Explain to them how a refrigerator fits into a Mazda 5. <laughs> I, did, I did have to put a refrigerator into a Mazda 5 and probably not the ideal way to transport a refrigerator, but it worked out. It worked out. And man, I did it all by myself too. I was able to lift it, have a dolly. I mean, you kind of learn some techniques and you do a little trial and error when you are a landlord. I think the stories of the difficulties of landlording can be overblown and they can make people really frightened to even think about investing in real estate. And so, yeah, we try to demystify some of that stuff too over on the show. And in particular, we did an episode about screening tenants. And that is the number one thing that you can do in order to ensure that landlording isn't that hard. If you listen to that episode and you put those things into practice and you become a landlord that screens tenants well, you are going to eliminate 99% of the issues that would arise. And you can self-manage your property. So I've been a landlord now for almost a decade and I have never had a 3 a.m. phone call where water was going all over the place. And I know that that happens. I know things happen, right? But I own multiple properties and I never ever face issues like that. Do I get emails that something needs to be fixed? Yeah. I mean, do things pop up and I need to tackle them? Sure. But it's just not the same as it's made out to be. I feel like in pop culture, in media, whatever, that landlording is like this most difficult, really hard thing. There is a lot of effort involved and it's not passive income like other people make it sound in the real estate community. But I feel like investing in real estate, for me at least, for what I've put into it, I've gotten amazing results. I've been really, really thankful for investing in real estate. I totally agree. It's clickbait. It's headlines. Everyone tells their story about their crappy tenants and what a nightmare it was and how they used squatters' rights and stayed in there. You know how you could have avoided that? It's like, remember the SATs when they said this is to that as this is to that. So good tenant screening equals no landlord stories, just as hiring a badass real estate agent equals great first-time buying home experience. That's completely true. Completely true. And I haven't dug deep in it with you, but the whole reason for this podcast is the real estate industry is completely broken. The threshold to get your license is pathetic. In California, it's 180 hours and 160 of that is open book. So if you can't do that first 160 hours in 10 hours, you're illiterate because you <laughs> just have to sit there. And then the last 20 hours, you have to study for a little bit and go take a test. It's 3,000 mm. hours to become a cosmetologist in California. Well, I think that is one of the problems when people do go to buy a home. Finding a good real estate agent is difficult. And if you do find an agent who is completely green, you know, wet behind the ears, doesn't know what they're doing, that can lead to a miserable home buying experience. And so, yeah, I think it's really important not just to take the recommendation of your neighbor or your grandma's best friend or whatever, 
but to actually do your research and make sure you're doing business with an agent who has closed a lot of deals and preferably a lot of deals in the area in which they know that neighborhood really well. And see, that's awesome because you guys had many episodes about helping people buy a house. And the difficulty right now is I'm starting this podcast to help people all over. And, but I want them to understand and realize, you know, we've got 45,000 downloads as of wherever we are here, June today. Now let's try that again. 4,500. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> let's go with it. That's great, man. That's great. Congrats. I'm, you know, 15, 16 episodes in here, but... 12 people have already called me from Hawaii, Atlanta, Chicago, folks that have needed help because what they're finding with the industry is they're just not getting the help. And so they're out there looking for it. And on your podcast, when you talked about renting versus buying, you talked about a lot of stuff that was awesome that helped. You guys discussed that appreciation, it generally follows inflation and don't believe that it's going to go up forever. And you were telling folks, your home is a home. It's not an investment. That's what you guys believe, right? Well, I think when you're buying a primary home to live in, it's been sold to folks that buying a primary home is this great investment. And that is typically the word that is used. But most people don't treat their primary home like an investment. So what they do is they buy this home and they've been told that it's a great investment. And then they do renovations out the wazoo. They put money into it that doesn't feel like investing money. It feels like money to make your life better, more rich, whatever, which is completely fine, right? I have a house. We're about to paint the exterior really soon. We've been waiting to do that for years. I'm not kidding myself and thinking that that is really an investment. It is protecting the house to a certain degree, right? Painting the exterior is important every few years. It's important to maintain the property that you live in. But I think when we're told that buying a home is a great investment, well, that's not always the case. And it's not even usually the case because of the way most buyers look at the home buying process. They're thinking of it as a place to live, a place to enjoy. And I think investing is, is something different than that. And so I think we should just be careful when we're using the term investing in regards to buying a primary home to live in. Yeah, I think that, that you know, doing this for as long as I have and watching people do what they do, that I think the real investing comes in the fact that you take, you guys talk a lot about your monthly items. I know that you know, Matt's the Excel guy, you know, you've come to love budgeting. But yeah, but I, I'm more go with the gut guy. But I, you know, nice. when I come to respect budgeting, my <laughs> wife helps me out a lot with it, which I'm thankful for. Well, okay, wow, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. Learning to love it, but also then learning to work with your spouse. Good, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's awesome. But you mentioned that the saving rates are once again in the toilet because God bless Americans. You know, 2008, no lessons learned. But if your largest line item is your home. I think helping to turn the mindset, that's where you think of your home as an investment, that this largest line item can go from rent into something that typically over a 10-year period, not over a three-year period, don't watch HGTV and think that you can flip this house. But understanding that that largest line item then goes into a long-term goal, sure. And if you're going to fix it up, the mindset is that's more for your quality of life as opposed to, you know, unless you're going to sell it in two minutes. It's kind of like stocks. Oh my gosh, I have an extra $5,000 in my Apple stock. Really? Did you sell it? Then you don't have it. It's just sitting there and it could change over the years, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to, even as a buyer going into buying a primary home purchase, if you will crunch the numbers and think of it like an investment, you can make a better decision. And I do think that, yeah, typically over the years, you know, you're going to build equity in a home and it's this forced method of savings, kind of like you're talking about. 
there is definitely an aspect of that to it. I think though, on the other side, a lot of people consider renting to be throwing away money. And I just don't think that's the case either because really in either case, you are looking for a roof over your head, you're looking for a place to live and renting offers you, you know, other alternatives too that home buying doesn't necessarily give you, right? It gives you flexibility, it gives you the ability to not have to repair anything. And you know what, you can say, okay, you know what, my lease is up at the end of November, I'm out of here and I'm moving on with myself to a better neighborhood, a better place, a different city for work. And a primary home purchase does kind of tie you down in some ways. If for me, we wanted to be tied down. We love the home that we've bought. You know, I own five houses, right? I think buying real estate is and can be a really, really good move and a really, really good investment. I just think that people going into buying a home, especially first-time home buyers, they hear the word investment and they think, obviously, it's a good idea to do this because it's an investment in my future. But if you don't approach it with the right mindset and with the right solid underlying financials at play, and then also with the right length of the idea of staying in the house long enough, it could turn out to not be a good investment. You could lose money on a home purchase, just like you could lose money in this investing in the stock market if you're looking at a short-term window. The same is true if you buy a house and you're looking at a short-term window, especially considering the transaction fees involved. So I always say to people that you shouldn't even buy a home if you're not planning on staying in it for a minimum of five years, probably more like seven years, just based on the transaction fees involved in real estate. Awesome. Okay, this is the fun part, everybody. Joel and I have been trading emails and it's been super nice and I told him that I might want to fight him on this. But <laughs> he's so cool, I know that. And I have learned so much from him and respect him so much. You guys talked about renting being better when you're geographically getting to know an area. I completely agree. Don't move from Atlanta to Los Angeles and think that you're going to live the life of dreams and buy a house when you get there. Not to mention, you know, you guys didn't even mention it, but I see it. When people are trying to buy a house, like they usually fly in and they have a week. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Make the largest financial decision of your life in a rushed eight hours looking at houses with me. Oh, I can't tell you how against that I am. I think, yeah, you need to know uh, the neighborhoods down to streets even too, right? So traffic, you guys talked about that. You guys said, you got to know the traffic. I was like, genius. I hadn't even thought about that. Completely, completely. I think... Yeah, the more you know neighborhoods, streets, places that you end up visiting often, schools. I mean, there are all these things to take into consideration about the specific location that you want to live. And we've honed that in over the years and where exactly we're in Atlanta, where exactly in Atlanta do I want to live? And, you know, even just one neighborhood over can make a big difference sometimes. And so, yeah, I think people, when they move to a new city, new location, renting for the first year is a really good idea. And then you kind of get your bearings and you're like, you know what? Okay, I really want to live there. And that's when you start to hone in on the house buying process. Totally, completely agree. All right, here comes the battle. So based on current interest rates, everything that works for buyers, I don't use the phrase, I believe. I use the phrase, this works for buyers, can work for buyers. Based on current interest rates, if you're in a situation where you're talking about someone who wants to pick up and leave, or no, doesn't know, maybe they will. So you move to Atlanta where you guys are. You got a good job, but there's a chance that in three years you might get transferred. I'm totally with you. The fees are probably going to outweigh if they have to sell the house. Let's say you get the standard, you know, inflation number, 3% increase every year. That's 9% that you're going to get for those three years. But where are we in the cycle? If we flatten in the next year, which is a very good chance we can, 
Now your home's only gone up 3%. The job does come to you and say, Atlanta was awesome. Now you're going to make a ton in Seattle. You're right. They can't sell the house and go. But you're a real estate investor. What if their rent or their mortgage is the same as what they could rent the property for? And instead of paying those fees, they go to Seattle and they get a tenant in there and now they become an investor. And maybe they don't buy in Seattle. Maybe they rent for a year and try to figure out what they're going to do. But if they're a break-even cash flow on that first property, what we've done for them is for the last three years, they didn't rent, they purchased, which means that's three years of money going into something. And the main crux of why they didn't, you know, based on what you were talking about, they might not want to rent is not really a factor because they can turn around and have a really good tenant screening session and be a landlord. And that's purely based on the fact that the numbers are even today based on interest rates. Yeah. I mean, well, I love the idea of buying a house, living in it for a couple of years, and then moving and renting it out. That's exactly the pattern I followed here in Atlanta. And so I bought my first house, lived in it for two years. I moved to another house, rented that first one out. And I did the exact same thing, lived in the next one for two years, and then moved and rented that one out. I think it's a really good pattern for someone who does want to become a real estate investor. I think there's just a couple of potential issues with what you posed. I think one, most people have to sell that primary residence in order to get the cash out for a down payment on their next house. Most people just don't have the savings rates at their disposal. They're not saving enough of their income to then have enough for a great down payment on this next house and get into real estate investing. There are also a lot of home buyers they just aren't interested in becoming landlords. Like that's just not something they desire or want to do. And so if that's your case, if, then I would say, don't do it. If you think it's going to be too much of a headache, if it's something that doesn't interest you at all, then I would stay away from it. That second one really struck home with me. You're right. Because I am involved in this and understand the numbers so well. Oh, that, see, did you hear that? As soon as I said, you're right, my computer dinged. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Joel's right. Oh, what, one other thing I wanted to, wanted to say, by the way, is long distance landlording is another issue, potential issue in that scenario where you might need to hire a management company to maintain that property. And also, I personally don't get out of bed to break even on my money. And so if I'm renting that house out just to cover the mortgage, that's a bummer to me. And I'm going to probably painstakingly fix it, the issues that go wrong. I want to jump out of bed in the morning and say, you know what? This is going to be a great day. I'm going to fix this stuff. I'm going to make my tenant happy. You know why? Because in the end, I'm actually making money on this investment as well. So I think there are a few potential issues there, but for the person who can make a little money and doesn't mind long distance landlording and doesn't mind being an investor, I think then that is definitely a big check mark in the, even though I'm only going to be here three years, if it's a good investment, underlying investment anyway, I mean, buy the house and live in it. Awesome. And it's a great point. Like I said, I think I'm just too wrapped in it. But if landlording is never your plan, then I just look at the numbers and go, oh my gosh, it's two or three years of rent that I have backed away from the phrase throwing it away based on what you were talking about. And that does make sense. But uh, I will say we should convince more people to get into real estate investing and to realize that it's not as hard as people make it out to be. And so I think if you're not willing to be a real estate investor because you think it's this really, really difficult thing. Well, it's not as hard as people made it seem. And there are some great resources out there that can help you learn how to become a decent real estate investor. And really just a little bit of research, a little bit of reading, a little bit of podcast listening 
can kind of help you become comfortable with that concept too. And it's funny because I know there are a lot of big real estate investors that when they're talking about you, you know, all these big terms in real estate investing, your cap rates and your ROI and what you're doing, so much of that comes from you're going to make your money in the slumlording. And yeah, you can. And you could be a good guy and make money in those areas. But what's really interesting is if you take the giant philosophical thought process about making money for your own family as a real estate investor, it's very much what got me into helping first-time buyers. Somewhere there's an 18-year-old right now that can't buy a house. Somewhere there's a 21-year-old that wants to move out and is not ready to buy. Wouldn't it be awesome if that person had somebody that said, hey, let me teach you what you can do next, or hey, here's a place to rent. It's not always renting. You don't have to rent to these crazy horror stories. If you're at a place in your life where you can now own a nice little house, now you rent to, you know, what would be awesome is rent to the 10 years earlier version of yourself, the guy that yeah. wasn't ready to buy yet or invest yet. Just keep doing that over and over again. And not only do you make money, but you make the universe a better place. Yeah, for me, when I'm looking at places to buy, I need to say, would I feel comfortable living here in the neighborhood, in the actual house? And once I fix it up, like, would I live there? And granted, right now with almost three kids on the way, some of these properties that I'm looking at, you know, there's a duplex. I've got the two one and my family wouldn't move into that right now. But I, 10 years ago, would totally have lived in that house. It's awesome. It's really nice. And so I kind of go on that level, right? I think about it like, would I live there? And if I would live there, I feel completely comfortable buying it because I know I can find other semi-decent human beings like myself that are willing to live there too. Awesome. Okay, last battle before we go. Let's do it. I understand why you want people to put 20% down. You come from a place of protection. Last year, there were 1.76 million home buyers, first-time home buyers, out of the 5.34 million home buyers. The average down payment was 6% for those people. I do not think we're going to have a ugly crash like we did last time. And what we've been helping people with is getting in at a lower down payment because if you're 3.5% and you have to save to 20, you might be trying to save that 16.5% for five or six or seven years. And if you're in a higher priced area and your rent's two grand a pop, every year that's $24,000. So for you trying to save from you know a 5% down even on a $300,000 place at $15,000. That's your down payment. If we wanted them to get to 20% to get to 60 grand, I mean, they could be saving five, seven years to get there. If they talk to someone and understand the whole big picture and understand that they're not gonna move in five years because they don't have enough equity to cover the transactional fees, which are approximately seven and a half percent, you know, could be as low as five and a half percent, including the real estate and the title and escrow. So that's a lot of numbers for my listeners without a whiteboard and me explaining it. But did you you get it? If they're going to stay for 10 years, my belief is that's a lot of money. I hear you and you come from such a good place about throwing money away. But if it's seven years of two grand a pop, and they can get in today at 5% with a fixed mortgage rate, and they know that that's their first step from nice townhome in Southern California or Seattle to eventually getting to a house in 10 years. How's that grab you? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think you make some good points. I mean, 
I think it's best for people, if at all possible, to try to save 20% put down on a house. And that is because you'll avoid private mortgage insurance. You're going to get the best rates possible if you're able to put 20% down. So I think it's really important for people to strive for that. I think when you're putting 3.5% down or 5% down to buy a home, we're talking about kind of getting to scary points of leverage at that point in time. And leverage works both ways. It can be really, really helpful when buying a home. It can get you into something a little bit more easily than you could otherwise, right? You just wouldn't be able to get into a home where not for using these massive amounts of leverage by having small down payments. But if there is, and you can ask a lot of people where this, we're buying houses in 2007 and 2008, when the markets do change and shift, and that was granted, you know, once in a generation kind of downturn, but that leverage works the other way. A lot of people got really hurt by doing that. So I think people should be more intentional about saving their money and being careful about the house they're going to purchase. I do think that it is okay to purchase a house with a lower down payment amount if you're willing to extend the amount of time that you're willing to be in that house. So like you said, like a 10-year window, it's really important. If you're going to put 5% down on the house, you really do need to extend that window out to 10 years that you're willing to be in the house on, let's say, a 30-year note, right? Because if you're buying a house with 5% down and you're going to be there four or five years, then that would be something I wouldn't advise anybody to do. If you are planning on putting 20% down and you're going to be in the house four or five years, that's a middle of the road thing right there, right? Like you're probably going to be okay. And so, yeah, I just think people just need to be careful. They need to take into consideration all of those extraneous factors. But I do think that it's certainly that there are a lot of situations in which getting people into a home at 5% down or something like that can make sense if they're planning on being there for the super long term. Awesome. And two quick thoughts on that. Number one, your leverage is like credit cards. It needs to be used correctly. You and I both know the stats at how terribly Americans use credit cards. Just because someone's willing to give you money, willing to lend you money, does not mean that you should take advantage of it. Just because you have a credit card with a $20,000 limit does not mean you should run it up. And just because someone, your lender says, you can afford a home that costs $300,000, doesn't mean you should be buying a home that costs $300,000. Maybe for your budget's sake, you should be buying a home that costs $175,000 or $225,000 just for your own mental sanity and your own ability to save for other things that matter to you as well. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm three quarters away through this stout or because what you said resonated with me so hard. But if anyone goes back and watches this video when I put it on YouTube, I about jumped on my chair when you <laughs> talked about, jumped out when you were talking about the lender. Totally right on. That's it. It's just because that analogy extends from the small to the gigantic. And what's crazy is that that exponentially is times 100. And people don't think of it that way. You don't push a $10,000 credit card And then people have trouble learning that. But boy, you really don't push a $200,000 loan. I love that. That makes such great sense. And when we're talking about that potential 20% hazard and having that cushion, the longevity of being able to stay there is the most important. And the deal is it takes a little time to just do the math, to realize and look at, okay, how long am I going to stay here? Because if you end up staying there for a shorter amount of time, then you are going to be in a position where, unfortunately, the sale of the property is not going to be as much. And the other big piece that goes into this is, I think that maybe in 10 years from now, maybe after your podcast and my podcast has been on the air and has a a shelf life, 
by that time, who knows, maybe people will just like take a chip and download it into their eyebrow and listen to everything. <laughs> Completely but, possible, man. I don't put anything past Elon Musk. You might invent that. Oh, I know. You know, if he gets that and the train for us out here, California to San Francisco, I'll be so stoked. That tube, I can't wait. Oh, the boring tunnel. It's going to be good. Oh, man. But, you know, I've also been hearing about a Vegas to LA train since I was 21 and barely old enough to gamble. But that's another story. <laughs> I think that when folks are, hopefully in general, if people just learn to save better, then they'll be able to have that bigger picture and no, there are many times when renting is not throwing money away. I think you and I can agree that the years of doing it should be as short as possible because you're looking at the long term. Can we agree on that? That makes sense. Oh, completely. If you have the desire to own a home and the desire to stay in one place, I think trying to buy a house of your dreams is a great thing to focus on. You know, I think it provides a sense of permanence, a sense of community. I know that us owning our own home and being in the same place four or five years now, you know, we've decided you know, we were buying a new home every two years and moving. And we said, you know what? No, this is the place that we want to be right here with these neighbors, walking distance to these things and biking distance to work and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, we're just not moving again. The financial portion of that isn't important enough to disrupt the community and family things that we have going on in this house. And so I think there are all these other intangibles that come into place. And if you're willing to stay put and you love that house and you're willing to be there for a long time, and I think, yeah, trying to focus on figuring out how to buy a house and do it with solid underlying financials, you know, backing you up, I think is definitely the way to go. All right. So Joel Larsgaard from How to Money. Anyone listening to this right now, I'm going to real quickly tell you where it fits. If you found the How to Buy a Home podcast and you found it because someone told you, dude, you can buy a home way sooner than you think. Then you start with me, but your next 93 podcasts are Joel and Matt because your biggest thing is learning frugal versus cheap. It's learning acorns and it's learning all the quick budgeting tips. Then a couple years from now, you come back to us and we talk about hiring a great realtor and then you're on your own. Go have fun. Now, if you're part two and you've found how to buy a home because you're sick and tired of your realtor, well, then you go back to my how to, I'm serious, dude. I'm three quarters of the way through a stout. <laughs> you hear that? I know, man. It's impressive. It's impressive. You're making it, barely. How do you do podcasts like this? I love it. <laughs> Dispensing financial advice, is a, it gets a little hairy at times. <laughs> yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's all about packaging. That's why I love what you guys are doing. So if you're close and you're really serious, there are many, many podcasts I do without a wonderful stout beer. And we go deep into finding that team, the real estate agent, the lender and all those things. And so we can focus on that. And then once you're in, I think it's a misnomer, people calling it a money pit, but how to money is really going to be beneficial to a first time buyer after their purchase. I mean, Joel, you'd agree that those first couple of years owning a home and just having the safety net to know I can't call my landlord and have him drive me over a refrigerator. It's got to be helpful to a new homeowner, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. You need to have a fund set aside for repairs when you're buying a home too. And that's another thing, I guess, that comes into play when we're talking about the amount of down payment you're able to muster up. Well, yeah, on top I know of that- you, you said you guys jumped from 20 to 30 and I jumped out of my chair. But- I'm sure. Yeah, I know. It feels like ridiculous or unattainable, I think. Smart. But you need to make sure you have a certain amount dedicated towards fixing things up because, and there's some things that you're going to know on the front end, right? Like you're buying the house and you saw the inspection report and you know that 
know, this HVAC is going to need to be replaced within the next you know, 24 months or whatever. You're going to know some of these things up front. And then other things you don't know. Your fridge might just bite the bullet. It's only seven years old and you have to buy a new one and there's no landlord to buy it for you. And so if you are buying a home, you need to be conscientious about how much money you have in savings to pay for potential things that, that are going to break in the house because now you're responsible and that's cool. It's your house. You're happy to do it. You just have to have the money to do it. Okay. So while you were talking, I got the idea for our next venture. It's going to be the top 15, 20, 30 tips for the first year of owning a home. 95% of people who own a home their first year are going to have a really good home warranty and the fridge, the washer and dryer, the dishwasher, all that stuff is going to be covered. So they've got a year where they're not going to have those landlord issues. So then I'd love for you guys to break down Acorn and all the awesome tricks and we can get every single first time buyer that I work with to save five, 10 grand by the end of the year with a bunch of saving stuff that's out there that they never even knew about. Yeah, totally, man. That'd be a good pairing. That's for sure. Love it. Joel, you're the best. This has been such a fun podcast. I could do this for so long, but you know, no one would click on a four and a half hour podcast once they saw the time. So. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, your thoughtfulness in the space and uh, getting the chance to kind of go back and forth and talk about some of these issues and hopefully get helpful to a lot of folks out there that, that want to buy a home. You guys are great. You're the first person I don't know that I've reached out to for this podcast because you guys come from such a good place and such an approachable place and it's real. And I it's really cool to know that you guys, you really want to get this information out, but you figured out we have to do it in a way that's digestible. And then you went, holy crap, that's fun too. So yeah. Oh man. It's so much fun. As you know, having a podcast and seeing people hear the shows, making changes. I mean, that is the most fulfilling part of it. Connecting with the people that listen and that are actually like something's happening, man. Something's clicking. And I love to see people empower, taking back their own lives and saying, you know what? I was in credit card debt and I made a change or I didn't know how to save. And now I've got this great emergency fund. I mean, there's just all these really cool stories that we hear. And to me, that's worth all of it for sure. Everyone thinks the best time that we have is turning on the mic. Now the best times that we have is opening up our email. That's yeah, so cool. Completely awesome. agree. All right. Well, go to how to money for Joel. Go to davidsedoni.com for me. The podcast is there. The YouTube page is there. We'll have this whole podcast written out for you along with links to a couple of things that we mentioned and definitely a link to how to money. Although if you're listening right now, you don't even have to go to the link, just search them. They're right there. Huge thanks to Joel and make sure that you guys listen to his podcast. You're going to get a bunch of great tips, not just for buying a home, but all kinds of other things. And the fact that I said that sentence pretty much the same thing twice lets you know how much fun their podcast is because you get to drink beer. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Joel, thank you so much. Everyone else out there, remember, you can do this.